Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, being the very first uh, Sunday of 2014, you know, I got to keep reminding myself because when I write checks, I usually forget and I, I put the wrong date down. So, I got to remember that. But uh, we also have the first communion of the uh, of the year as well on this Sunday. So, a lot of firsts this morning. Um, you know, with 2014, I you know one of the things that's uh, probably on the minds of a lot of believers, and I know it's on my my mind and my heart this morning, is uh, how soon before Christ returns. You know, you wonder about that. I do, and you know, I look around at the things that are going on, and and uh, it was interesting. Last summer, I was at a uh, family reunion up in Canada, and. Uh, uh, one of my uncles was talking about who he believed that the Lord was returning really soon, and he was talking about kind of the stuff that was going on in the world. And I have another uncle, and he was listening to him, and he's just like kind of poo-pooing what he was saying. Basically, said, "Ah, oh, you know, things haven't, you know, it's it's always been like this, you know. So, you know, we're, it's just another another year kind of a thing." And and I was sitting there thinking, "Well, that's kind of an interesting take because." You know, I look around and, and yeah, sin has been around since Adam and Eve. I mean, there's always been sin. There's always been, you know, the homosexual issue. That's been around since Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it, all things, there's nothing new under the sun. But I look at what's going on in our culture and in our society globally, not just in the United States, and I think, man, I don't know that it's ever been as bad as it is now. And, uh, at least not in my lifetime. <laughs> and so I, I really do believe that Christ is returning. And so one of the things that's heavy on my heart, or, or on my heart, I should say, is are we living in the last days? You know, um, how close are we re- to Christ's return for his church? And so as I was reflecting on that, I, I started turning to the Bible, good place to go to when you're wondering about those kind of things. And in Matthew 24, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can, because we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning. Matthew chapter 24 Verse 37, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready." For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Jesus' point in that teaching there was that the sudden and unexpected return of his church at the end of the age would occur, and it would be sudden and be unexpected, I should say. And you know, he says it was be as in the days of Noah. And then he gives us these examples of, you know, they were marrying, they were giving into marriage. Basically what he was saying was life was going on as normal. And then the judgment happened. Well, as I was reflecting on that scripture, I thought, well, you know, what was normal for Noah's day? And, you know, you can go to the Bible and you can find out what was normal for Noah's day. And so that's where I want to go take you to next. Genesis chapter 6, going all the way back to the beginning. What was normal, uh, what was normal in, the life in, or in life in Noah's day? Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, 
men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will, we, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and, it in, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That was what life was in Noah's day. That was the, the normal for Noah in his time. And so... Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, it would be at the time of his return. And so looking at that passage of Scripture in Genesis 6, there are a few things that I think we can look to, to look at and compare with our culture today. First of all, the first principle or the first characteristic of the days of Noah was where he says that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. The first characteristic of the days of Noah was that there was a population explosion. You know, when you think of it, you think, you know, how many generations was Noah from Adam? How could there be a population explosion? How could there be such a large population? I think Genesis chapter 5 actually gives us a few clues. And so I'm going to back up here. We're not going to read through Genesis chapter 5, and I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. Looking at Genesis chapter 5, this is the genealogy of Adam all the way down to Noah. And it begins, and it says that Adam was 130 years old, and he had Seth. Remember they first, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, and uh, God sent Cain away. He was banished. He had to leave. And then God gave them another son named Seth. Uh, Adam was 130 years old when he had Seth. And the Bible says that after Adam had Seth, he lived for 800 more years. And it says, and he had sons and daughters. And Adam lived to a ripe old age of 930 years. That's a long time. Well, Seth was 105 years old and had Enosh. When Enosh was born, remember, think about this, Adam was still alive. And uh, after Enosh... Seth lived 807 more years, and the Bible says, and he had sons and daughters. And Seth lived to 912 years. Enosh was 90 years old and had Canaan. And when Canaan, who's Adam's great-grandson, was born, think about this. Adam was still alive, and Seth, his grandfather, was still alive. And after Canaan, Enosh lived 815 more years and had sons and daughters, and Enosh lived to 905. Then his son, Canaan, was 70 years old and had Mahalalel. And when Mahalalel was born, again, Adam was still alive. Seth was still alive. After Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 more years, and the Bible says, and he had sons and daughters. And Canaan lived to 910 years. Then Mahalalel was 65 years old. He was just a young guy and uh, had Jared. And when Jared was born, again, Adam was still alive. Seth was still alive. After Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 more years, and he had sons and daughters, and Mahalalel lived to 895. Jared, his son, was 162 years old and had Enoch. And when Enoch was born... Get this, Adam was still alive, Seth was still alive. After Enoch, Jared lived 800 more years, and he had sons and daughters, and Jared lived to 962. Enoch was 65 years old and had Methuselah. When Methuselah was born, Adam was still alive, Seth was still alive. After Methuselah, 
Enoch, it says, walked with God 300 more years, and he had sons and daughters. And Enoch lived to the ripe old age of 365. And it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Very interesting. I think it's a picture of the rapture of the church, but that's just my opinion. But uh, very interesting that Enoch never died. He was just translated, taken to heaven. Well, his son, Methuselah, was 187 years old and had Lamech. When Lamech was born, Adam was still alive and Seth was still alive. You can do the math. You can figure out the math of, of how old Adam was and, you know, and then you, you just, it's, it's there. So Adam was still alive and Seth was still alive. And after Lamech, Methuselah lived 882 more years and had sons and daughters also. And Methuselah, who's the oldest man recorded in the Bible, lived to 969 years. And the year that he died, by the way, was the year of the flood. Lamech was 182 years old and had Noah. Now, during the time Adam was still alive when Lamech was born... But during Lamech's life was when Adam died and Seth died. And so when Noah was born, it was 126 years after Adam had died and 14 years after his son Seth had died. And then the Bible says, After Noah, Lamech lived 595 more years and had sons and daughters, and Lamech lived to 777. Noah was 500 years old and had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I would, Teresa and I were talking about them. I'm like, does that mean he had twins or triplets? Or is it just recording that he had them, you know, at that time? I, I don't know. But anyways, at 500 years old, he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it says that Noah was 600 years old when the flood began. That's a total, if you add up those years, that's a total of 1,656 years from the point of creation when Adam and Eve were created to the time of Noah, to the time of the flood. 1,656 years. And the Bible says that each one of these people that I've named, they had sons and daughters besides the children that were named in the genealogy. So if you take sons, which is plural, and daughters, which is plural, that we can assume... They had at least four children, or actually five children, because there had been the one named, plus the two sons and two daughters, minimum, if we're taking this literal. Um, so theoret theoretically, there was at least five kids per family. And then you take a look at their long lifespans, and we can assume that they had relative health in those days, why they lived as long as they did. Um, I don't know how many of you know who Lambert Dolphin is, but if you ever want to in, go into some interesting background stuff in the Bible, look up Lambert Dolphin. And he's got a pretty cool website. It's got a lot of interesting information. Well, I went to his website, and he was referring to a study that Dr. Henry Morris of the Creation Research Institute did regarding how many people were alive at the time of the flood. And if you go to their webpage, they got all these formulas, and they have all these, you know, these calculations more than what I know. But the bottom line is they believe that there was 5 to 17 billion people on the planet at the time of the flood. They say on average 10 billion people. So that's quite a few people in that span of year, of time. Um, of course, no one was there to say that's exactly what it was, but that's the best estimate based on what we understand. Well, how does that compare with today? Anybody know how many people are alive on the planet today, roughly? Seven billion. Seven billion people alive on the planet today. It's interesting. There's a website you can go to. I forgot the name of it, but it, it's a counting, population counter. It counts people in different continents and their, the, lives, the lives and the deaths, and you can just see the numbers changing. as it's. I don't know how they do that, but anyways. But what's fascinating to me was that Adam was alive during all these generations up to Noah's generation. All those, gener all those people were alive. And you wonder, you know, how did, how did the creation account, how did the story of, you know, how did the Bible stuff come around? I mean, how did people know to write down all this stuff, um, you know, years later? How did they come up with us? Well, think about it. Adam was alive to share the creation story firsthand with all these generations of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
That's fascinating to me. Hey, Adam, what was it like before sin entered the world? Can you imagine that conversation? And how probably, I just assume Adam, because I'm a grandfather, and, you know, I want to impart truth to my children, my grandchildren. I, you know, I want to give as much as I can to my grandchildren to pass on to future generations. I can just imagine Adam wanting to sit down every time there's a new, you know, new child. Let me tell you about life. Let me tell you what happened. You know, sharing all those years. What's interesting to me also, fascinating to me, is that although these men had other sons and daughters... Noah was the only one that was righteous in his generation. Noah, his sons, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives were the only ones that were spared from the flood. And these people, they all had this, you know, they were all related to Adam. They all probably heard the stories, I'm assuming. And yet only certain people walked with God. Fascinating to me. has nothing to do with this morning, but I mean, it's just interesting. (laughs) Anyways... There probably was a population explosion when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. That's what it was in in Noah's day. The second characteristic of the days of Noah, now this is very strange, and there's a lot of different opinions about it, but it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took wives for themselves, and it says that the resulting offspring were giants, men of renown. Now, there's one interpretation of that passage of Scripture and it's that the sons of God is referring to the descendants of Seth, the godly generations, the godly line uh, descended from Seth. And the daughters of men were descendants of Cain because Cain had children too. And there's a genealogy listed in the Bible with Cain's descendants. Um, and that intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly people was what this is talking about. Now there's some problems with that interpretation. First of all, would that be bad enough to cause God to wipe out the human race with a flood? I guess that's kind of a hard one to answer. But it also says that their offspring was unnatural giants. Why would that be the result of mixed marriages between righteous and unrighteous people? I don't know. If you go and look at the sons of God in the Bible, there's three other times that it's mentioned in the Old Testament, and the three other times are in the book of Job, and they always refer to angelic beings, the sons of God. So another interpretation is that they were, in fact, angelic beings, which we know as demons, and somehow they had sexual unions with humans. And it explains the unnatural offspring. If you look at it, take it literally, it explains the unnatural offspring. It also explains a very interesting passage in the, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, verse 6, it talks about, it says this, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So if you take that passage literally, there were angels that left their proper domain and they went after strange flesh, which would make sense if you look at that account in the book of Genesis. You wonder, why would that occur? Well, think about this. Satan's motive, I mean, he was there when Adam and Eve sinned. You know, he was there when God cursed the serpent. I mean, you know, he he was there. He heard everything. And if he knew that there was eventually going to come a seed from the woman who would crush his head, he would do everything he could within his power to not let that happen. And so Satan would have a motive to try to pollute the human race as much as possible. I mean, it just, to me, it all, it fits so that he could try to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Well, like I said, there's different opinions. You might even have another opinion than that, and that's okay. But the second characteristic I think that we can glean from that is that there was an increase in occult activity and sexual perversion. Now, that was in Noah's day. How about in our day? Is there an increase in occult activity and sexual perversion? You know, in the United States alone, 18 states 
have now legalized homosexual marriage. Globally, 16 countries have legalized gay marriage. There's another thing that's perverted. Let me read this. It's from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's a website. You can go to it and get all this information. It says, U.S. law enforcement agencies have seen a dramatic increase in cases of ex, uh, sexual exploitation of children since the 1990s, according to a report to Congress in 2010. In 2006, U.S. attorneys handled 82.8% more child pornography cases than they had in 1994. State and local law enforcement agencies involved in Internet crimes against children tax task forces reported a 230% increase in the number of documented complaints of online enticement of children from 2004 to 2008. Um, this task force, I won't, it's a long one, but that task force that I just mentioned, noted a more than 1,000% increase in complaints of child prostitution from 2004 to 2008. As of October 2013, the cyber tip line has re received more than 2.1 million reports of, of suspected child sexual exploitation since it was launched in 1998. Um, and then also as of October 2013, uh, the NCMEC's Child Victim Identification Program has reviewed and analyzed more than 96 million child pornography images since it was created in 2002. Now that's a new phenomena, you know, and with the rise of the Internet, that, it's new. It's not something that's, I mean, yeah, that sin has been going on since way back, but the explosion of it. It's, it's, it's amazing how it's, how it's expanded. So, yes, sexual perversion, I think we can safely say it's definitely on the increase. It's definitely as like in the days of Noah. How about the occult? I have this from, again, you can go to their website, from FBI.gov. It's the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They have a law enforcement bulletin. And uh, they have a, uh, a guy by the name of Robert J. Bunker who has a Ph.D. He's a psychologist. And he did some research on the narcotics wars that's going on in Mexico. And it's spilling over into the southern states, of course. You've, you've heard of different stories of, of uh, drug killings. It's just been crazy down there. And one of the factors that's not really reported on, but this guy did a, did a three-part three study on, is that there is an occult connection with a lot of the killings that are going on with these drug, uh, drug uh, gangs. And it's called uh, the Santa Muerte. It says, this variant of the cult, because it's a cult that's been around, promotes greater levels of criminality than the more mainstream forms of Santa Muerte worship. One component entails the rise of the cartel and gang narco-cultura, which means the drug culture, variant of the cult of Santa Morarte, literally translated as holy death. This variant of the cult promotes greater levels of criminality than the more mainstream and older forms of Santa Morarte worship. Sometimes it can be so extreme that it condones morally corrupt behaviors, what many people would consider as resulting from an evil value system that rewards personal gain above all else, promoting the intentional pain and suffering of others, and even viewing killing as a pleasurable activity. It's a cult, and they're, 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 a lot of these gangs are involved in this worship of this, this holy death. And it's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like the opposite of the Virgin Mary kind of a thing, um, and it's it's crazy. There's a, I'm not going, we could be here all afternoon. I could be reading this stuff, but you can go to the website and look it up. Um, in Africa, in the African nations, they're dealing with an increase in ritualistic killings. So yeah, there's a rise in occult activity. I believe, and it's not just in the United States. I'm talking globally. Be easy to say. Well, let's look at how bad the U.S. is. It's a global issue, folks. Um, what was the third characteristic of the days of Noah? It says the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, there was no aspect 
of man's nature that was not corrupted by sin. There's nothing. There was nothing good. There was there was no aspect of man's nature not corrupted by sin. How does it get that way? Well, that means that there was no moral restraint. The Bible has a lot to say. In fact, it describes how a society can get to that point. You look at the story of Israel during the time of the Judges, the book of Judges. The time of the Judges is, you know, you have Moses who led the children out of the promised land and uh, wandered in the wilderness. He was not allowed to go into into, uh, Canaan because he had uh, sinned against God. He had misrepresented God. And so uh, God raised up Joshua. And Joshua led the people into the promised land. And, and Joshua was a godly man and he was a godly leader. And, and for the generations that were alive during Joshua's leadership of Israel, Israel had restraint. And Israel, I mean, yeah, they sinned, they did some things, but they had a leader that was kept leading them towards God. But the Bible says, after the time that Joshua died, in Judges 7 verse, 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, it's like, whatever I want to do. And you look at today, people are doing whatever they want to do. They just, whatever's right for me. There's no absolute truth. My truth might not be your truth, you know. Whatever I think is right. And so that's how it was in the time of Judges. Um, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was a leadership vacuum. In Judges 18, verse 7, it says, There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. There was no rulers that stood up and said, Hey, this is sinful. This is wicked. We need to stop it. There was no more leaders. There was a leadership vacuum. How about today? I read an article just last week. I don't know how many of you know who Lekwalesa is, but let me read this to you. It says, The Nobel Peace Prize winning former president of Poland, Lekwalesa, says President Obama has failed to reclaim America's role as a world leader. In an interview with CNN aired Wednesday, the 70-year-old Walesa, who supported Republican Mitt Romney in the 2012 election, said the Obama administration has been a dangerous disappointment. When he was elected... There was great hope, Walesa said. We were hoping Obama would reclaim moral leadership for America, adding that failed. In terms of politics and morality, America no longer leads the world, he said. America did not regain its leadership status. We were just lucky there were no big conflicts in the world saying the world has relied on a strong America to maintain the balance of power around the globe. That lack of, of leadership. You know, people look at the United States. You know, we've been, we've been a, a, a one of the superpowers. And like it or not, whether you believe in being involved in foreign, you know, different things going on around the world, America was a restraining influence for a lot of evil that was going on in this world. We stood up to Hitler. You know, we stood up against communism. We stood up against all these things. But today, that leadership is lacking. And it's not just politically, but it's morally. Look at, what's, look at the laws that are being passed right now in our country. Here, and I'm not a prophecy buff, but I think I can say this, and I'm not, thus, I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord, because if it doesn't happen, you can stone me, and I don't want to get stoned. But um, I think that there's a trend, a prophetic trend, and I think what you and I are going to see in 2014 is a continually furthering decline in U.S. influence worldwide. And there's going to be, there's a void there, and it's going to get filled, and it's going to be filled by people who are less moral, one of the people that's going to, one of the actors in that world stage is Vladimir Putin. He's stepping in to fill the gap in the, where America's holding back. I think we're going to see that just continuing. What's the fourth characteristic of the days of Noah? It says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So there was widespread corruption and widespread violence. 
Again, you know, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this. How did the pre-flood world, that was just a few generations from Adam, how did it get to the, to the point where God said it's just filled with violence? You know, again, you have to go back to the Bible. You know the story. Cain killed Abel. God cursed Cain to live a life as a vagabond and a wanderer on the earth. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 13. And Canaan said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. You know, you think about it and go, wait a minute, where were the people? I mean, Adam and Eve, you know, Cain and Abel, and, and but they had sons and daughters. And the earth multiplied greatly, very quickly. Moving on to Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, it's not the same Enoch that I just was talking about earlier. This is under Cain's line, his descendants. Some of the names are the same. Um, And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Again, where did Cain get a wife from? Well, there's all these descendants of Adam and Eve's children. Um, Verse 18, To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Again, that's a different person than the Lamech who was Noah's father. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. Lamech is the first polygamist, by the way, in the Bible. Verse 23. Now listen to this. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So here's this guy who's descended from Cain, and he says, you know, you know, I've killed a person for wounding me. It's like, you know, he's probably the first guy that had road rage, you know, on the, you know, maybe if he was riding something, a chariot or something. But, you know, disproportionate revenge. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. You know, you, you bump into me, I'm going to break your leg. I mean, you, you, that mentality of just worsening and worsening and deepening and, and getting more and more violent. Multiply that by how many people that were out on the planet during that time. It's also interesting that the giants that were described earlier that I talked about, uh, they were described as mighty men of old. You know, if you look at the actual Hebrew, what giant means, it means bully or tyrant. And mighty men, strong uh, men of renown, it means famous and actually it means more like infamous. And so these guys were strong and they were supernaturally strong bullies and tyrants who had a reputation for being vicious and violent. Think about it. If you were a giant and you lived in a culture like that, <laughs> you probably relied on your strength, your height, your stature, your build, you know, and you could, you, could, you could be the top guy. Well, today, how do we compare that to today? Of course, we don't have giants in our, at least not many tall people, but we have, you know, we don't have the giants, but we certainly have violence. Sorry, Chad. <laughs> we certainly have violence. But he's pretty tall. Um, and violence, we have seen an increase in the U- U.S. for sure. One of the things that's just, it's just sickening to me. Have you ever heard of that knockout game that's going on? People call it the knockout game. It's uh, these, these gangs of these, these guys, they go around and they videotape themselves actually cold cocking someone and knocking them out. And that, I mean, it's, it's like it's fun for them. And there's a racial aspect to that too. It's generally blacks against whites, although just I think a week ago there was a white guy that did that to a black guy. You know, it doesn't matter about the races. It's violent. It's cruel. And it's it's just it's it's sinful. It's it's just wicked. It's evil. And you know we could we could look at all kinds of crime that's increased in the U.S. But again, 
it's not just the United States. There's an explosion of violence that's going on globally. The latest phenomena on a global scale with regard to violence also traces its roots back to Genesis. Fascinating to me. I took this from the uh, In the Days website, which is uh, Pastor John Higgins. He pastors the Calvary Chapel down in Arizona. He's got a lot of interesting information on his website. But he's talking about Noah. He said, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which we talked about. Uh, From Shem came Abraham. You guys know that. Uh, From Abraham came Ishmael through Hagar, the maid of Abraham's wife, Sarah. As a result... Ishmael became the biblical father of the Arab nations. From Ishmael came Muhammad, who in approximately 632 A.D. founded the religion of Islam. The majority of the Middle East descended from Ham and adopted the religion of a Muhammad the Ishmaelite, of Muhammad the Ish, a Ishmaelite. Uh, then there was another son of Noah named Japheth. Japheth settled in the present-day Iran and is not an Arab. So if you look at the Iranians, they're actually not Arabs. Uh, They're descended from Japheth, um, but they adopted the religion of Islam. The religion, Islam, is divided into two main groups. The Sunnis, or Sunnis, they are headquartered in Saudi Arabia, and the Shiites, who are headquartered in Iran. Now, Iran was known as Persia, until May of 1935. At that time, Persia, in concert with Adolf Hitler, changed its name to Iran, which means Aryan land. I didn't know that. It was interesting. Since the death of Mohammed, these two groups have been engaged in a battle to gain control of the religion. The Shiite branch, which is from Iran or headquartered in Iran, claims its right to control because Ali, its founder, was the nephew of Muhammad. See, when Muhammad died, he didn't leave any like will of who was going to take over the religion after he died. Um, and so the Shiites from Iran, headquartered in Iran, they base their, their right to claim a control from one of their ancestors who was a nephew of Muhammad, Ali. When the Sunni, uh, while the Sunni branch claims its right to control because its founders were the generals in charge when Muhammad died. This battle continues to this very day. So we have Ishmael, who was a descendant of Noah's son Shem through Abraham, his father. Listen to this prophecy in Genesis 16, verse 12, speaking about Ishmael. It said, He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. You look at today. Um, I have an article. It's from the Toronto Star newspaper, dated uh, 9-16-13. Uh, I didn't go to the Toronto Star to get it, but you can go to in the days. Dot org. I think it's I think it's dot org. It might be dot net, but uh, it's dot com. In the days dot com, and look under Ishmael. You can find all this information in there. But he stored the article in there from the Toronto Star, and it's an article dealing with Shiite and Sunni violence. And uh, I'll just read a couple things here. This is from that article. It says, in the not-so-distant past, the doomsday scenario was a cataclysmic clash of civilizations between Muslims and the secular West. But the Arab Spring has brought a seismic shift in the sectarian landscape. With civil war and political chaos rippling through the region, the deadly divide now runs through the Muslim world itself. In Syria, Lebanon, Bahrain, and Iraq... Sunni and Shi'i Muslims are struggling for power while religious intolerance rises violently in Egypt. Meanwhile, the Sunni Gulf states are fighting proxy battles with Shia Iran for supremacy in the region with Syria as ground zero. Um, It goes down a little further here. It says, While Shiites believe their leaders, the Ayatollahs, are representatives of God on earth, Sunnis focus on the teachings of the prophet. 
For centuries, the religious practices have diverged, each side accusing the other of heresy or extremism. However, Muslims managed to avoid the massive decade-long battles of Christianity and have managed, this is, of course, an article from probably not a believer, but however uneasily to, uh, excuse me, they have managed, however uneasily, to coexist and intermarry. Outside the Middle East, the only minority, only a minority are concerned with sectarian strife, according to the recent Pew poll. In the Arab countries, that may now be changing. But even before the Arab Spring, the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq touched off an explosion that blew apart the relative calm that had prevailed between the region's Sunni majority and Shia minority under dictatorial regimes. The war in Iraq institutionalized sectarianism. Says the explosion of sectarian violence that followed the invasion polarized Iraq and caused the death of tens of thousands of people in attacks that are going on today. If you just caught the news just, I don't know, maybe a day or two ago, Fallujah, Fallujah, I think it's Fallujah, uh, one of the Iraq cities where our forces, there are a lot of our people died trying to defend that, to wipe out, to kick uh, Al-Qaeda out of that city to, to maintain some, get some sanity to the place. That has fallen back into the hands of Al-Qaeda just this, just this past week. And a lot of people are saying it's because the U.S. pulled out. And, you know, the generals, all the military leaders said, don't pull out, don't pull out. It's, it's too soon to pull out. Politically, we made the decision as a nation, pulling out no matter what, and now there's a there's a void there, and they've come back in. And I think of all the people that have died, and now it's it's like for what? Um, let me read just a little bit more here, and then I'll get to my point. The war in Syria, boy, that's a big thing. With a Shiite linked Alawite, Shiite linked Alawite. Alawite regime battling for survival, Assad's an Alawite, uh, battling for survival against mainly Sunni rebels, sent out new shockwaves into the turbulent region. Across the Arab world, says Abdu, this is a guy that these, this person's quoting, the Shiite power move, moment has now been eclipsed by a growing Sunni bid for ascendancy in both the religious and political realms. The civilian Syrian civil war, she says, has given the Gulf rulers a reason to suppress their own Shia populations and to detract from the legitimate grievances of opposition members. And then it goes down a little bit further and says, A dangerous turning point arrived when the leader of the Lebanese Shia faction Hezbollah, backed by Iran, admitted publicly that he was sending fighters to Syria. It is now seen as a defender of Shia Islam in the region. And, and, you know, if you've caught the news recently, there's been all these explosions going on in Beirut. It's not, it's not the Israelis trying to wipe out Muslims. It's Muslims wiping out Muslims. It's, it's Sunnis trying to wipe out the Shiites. And the reason, I'll go back to why I bring all of this up, is, you know, Worldwide, I mean, yeah, we have a certain amount of certain kinds of violence that's going on in our nation, of course, but worldwide and especially in the Arab, in the whole Middle East, there, violence is exploding beyond belief right now. Uh, Syria is is about ready to head into a well, it is in a civil war basically. Now they're worried that Lebanon is going to go into a civil war. I mean, things are getting really, really bad out there. Violence has increased on the face of the earth. This is a new phenomenon because before Muslims tended to coexist. They didn't, you know, there was kind of some relative calm there with the different dictators and with all the things that's been happened in just the recent last year, it's all different now. It's exploded. So, how about today? I think it's pretty safe to assume based on these different things that we are living in the days of Noah. That this is the time so what are you and I to do? Well, I think it's pretty simple. We're to live as Noah lived during a time of increasingly greater wickedness. How did Noah live? You know, it's, it's kind of cool. In the New Testament, we have a few passages that refer to Noah. In Hebrews 11.7, says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, 
prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. God warned Noah a hundred years before of this coming judgment. And so Noah heeded God's warning of a coming judgment. It says he walked with godly fear. What does that mean, he walked with godly fear? It means that he lived his life in fear of God. He lived his life knowing that there was a judgment coming, and he lived accordingly. And he prepared an ark for the saving of his household. I think that speaks volumes to parents. His obedience and his faith was a contrast. It was a stark contrast, and it condemned the wickedness that, around, that was around him. How he lived his life stood out from those of his godly neighbors. And I have to ask myself, how about me? How about you today? Is our life standing out? Are we godly people? You know, if being born again or being a born again radical follower of Jesus Christ was illegal in our country today, and believe it or not, we're getting closer to that. But if it was illegal for you and I to be a born again radical follower of Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you and I this morning? Another passage, Second Peter 2.5 describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Now, a lot of people call me a preacher. I'm up here preaching, right? What is a preacher of righteousness? What is a preacher? Listen to this definition. A preacher is a herald or messenger vested with public authority who conveyed the official messages of kings, magistrates, princes, military commanders, or who gave a public summons or demand and performed various other duties. In other words, he didn't just talk, but he did things. A preacher. In the New Testament, God's ambassador and the herald or proclaimer of the divine world. For you and I, we're to be preachers of righteousness in our generation. We're to our lives are to stand in a stark contrast with the world around us. You know, from the time of Noah's, well, the time that God spoke to Noah, warning him of the flood, it it took a hundred years. Noah was building that ark for a hundred years before the flood actually occurred. And you know, how soon will Christ's return be? Now, I'm not a prognosticator. The Bible says that no man knows the day or, or hour, and I think it's foolish. Those people, you know, we have it plain in scriptures. God says no man knows the day or hour, and yet there's people that try to predict the day and hour. They, you know, they say, "Well, I've got this formula; it's going to happen this year." I'm never going to say that. Um, but Jesus did talk about recognizing seasons, and I think we can look at the season that you and I are living in today. And you know, the the, the dangerous thing for you and I as believers in our culture, and I think it was dangerous in Noah's culture is to get acclimated. It's like you get it's like it's become normal. You know, you look you hear about the news, you know, you read about the violence, you know, hmm, you know, hum. You're about gay marriage, oh, hmm, you know, it's terrible what's going on. And we can become kind of like the frog in the in the pot of water that's kind of getting heated up, you know. We can be like that. We can just kind of start becoming like our culture and we're not to be that way. We're to stand out from our culture. And I think as we're entering into 2014, it's going to be that much more important for you and I as believers of Jesus Christ to stand up for what we believe in, to stand up against, and and for our lives to be a stark contrast to those around us. And unfortunately, you know, for some of us, people look at our lives, you know, unless we told them that we're a believer, they wouldn't know because our lives aren't any different than theirs. But that's not the way it should be, right? Our lives should be different. I want to close with this passage of scripture whether or not Jesus returns for his church I hope he does soon but whether or not it happens in 2014 listen to what Paul wrote I can say this with all authority and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed so I don't know when you accepted the Lord. I did back when I was in sixth grade, and then I walked away, and I rededicated my life as around, I think, 18 or so, 19 years old, something like that. Um, his return is that much sooner than when I first believed. And every year, we're getting that much closer 
to Christ's return for his church. Um, Luke, you want to go ahead and come on up? We're going we're gonna to have communion. And, you know, let me read this to you. I normally do this during communion, but let me go ahead and read this. It's from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I don't know. Yeah, I'm assuming most of us here have lost loved ones in the past year or maybe past couple years or, you know, there are loved ones that we have that we know, um, that we know we're believers. And as Christians, when a person dies, you know, the Bible says we don't have no hope like the rest of the world does. We have a hope that, you know, my loved one is in heaven and I'm going to see them again. And, and, you know, that's what keeps us, kind of keeps us going, right? I'm going to see that loved one. What we're doing this morning with communion, do you know that it's like a dress rehearsal? You know, one thing, I'm going to be doing some weddings this summer. And uh, one of the traditional things you do with a wedding, you know, you, you, you plan the plan the wedding, you do the counseling and all that. And then usually a day or two before the wedding, usually it's a day before, uh, there's the rehearsal dinner. And everybody gathers together. We kind of we kind of walk through the ceremony, and then we enjoy food together. And you know, it's kind of a fun time. And then there's that marriage, uh, and then the marriage is the, is the real deal. And you know, the meal's fine. And you know, just it's just such a great celebration. What you and I are doing this morning, it's like the rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's coming a time when we're going to all be gathered around the table, and all those loved ones that you've lost. We're going to be gathered together in the Lord's presence. And um, folks, I think it's really close. I really do. So let's go, Lord, in prayer. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And then uh, I'll go ahead and once Luke starts leading in, in worship, uh, come on up and take a cracker and juice. Bring it back to where you're sitting and sit down. And we'll partake of it together. Uh, communion in Calvary Chapel is open to anyone that has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, why don't I pray and then Luke will lead us in worship.